Charlie wrote here, I hope one day you will forgive me, a mother's betrayal. On June 6, 1996, at 2.30 a.m., Charlie Routier hysterically places a 911 call stating, they just stabbed me and my kids. Oh my God, oh my God, he is dead. My babies, they are dying. Just minutes before, Darley and her children, Devin 6 and Damon 5, were brutally attacked with a knife. Y'all look out in the garage. They left a knife laying on the floor. I already touched it and picked it up. On August 27, 1996, this recording was played for Darley's bond hearing. Now, I was a bit suspicious from the start with this call, but you have to remember people react differently to traumatic situations and you can't go by the recording alone. But on the other hand, my co-host thinks it was the first red flag. Yes, I definitely think that there were several red flags that made me question Darlie about what happened that night. Darlie's call to 911 began with her screaming, somebody came in. She went to tell the dispatcher that she and her children had been stabbed. Darren's voice is first heard 30 seconds into the call. At 55 seconds, Darlie asked frantically, oh my God, what do we do? The dispatcher did not respond because she was calling for assistance over the radio. Darren testified that upon discovering Devin with gashes in his chest, he began to perform CPR. Darren explained that Darley was running back and forth from the kitchen over to Damon and then she came over to Devin. When she asked what she was doing in the kitchen, he answered, getting towels. He described her as trying to stop the bleeding and trying to hold his chest together, referring to the couple's oldest child, Devin. Officer Waddell was 1.9 miles from the Routier home on 5801 Eagle Drive. Lieutenant Walling was 3.1 miles from the home. Both received the call regarding the emergency at the Routier home and began driving towards the house. Paramedics were also alerted, and this is confirmed through the testimony. At exactly 2.31 a.m., one minute and seven seconds into the 911 call, Darley is heard talking to Damon. She says, Damon, hold on, honey. 
she is again heard speaking to Damon one minute and 48 seconds into the call. She said something unintelligible, followed by what sounded like, do you want honey? Hold on. The dispatcher responded by stating she could not understand what Darley was saying. Darley replied, I'm talking to my babies. They're dying. Darren can still be heard speaking in the background of the 911 tape. At 2.32 a.m., two minutes and 20 seconds into the call, Darley is heard speaking to Damon. She said, hold on, hold on, honey. Darren is also heard in the background. It's now 2.33 a.m. In testimony, Darren depicted the arrival of the first officer, David Waddell, on the scene. Darren and Waddell gave slightly different accounts in that Darren implied the officer came to the door, but Waddell testified to seeing Darren in front of the house. Waddell explained the two met in the yard by the fountain and then went into the house. Waddell's arrival is confirmed through the 911 recording. Three minutes and 45 seconds into the call, a police officer's voice is identified. He is heard saying, look for a rag. Darren testified the officer froze and stopped moving once he entered the home and observed what had happened there. Waddell would later testify that he asked Darley repeatedly to help her son. He would say that each time he asked, she refused. This is not supported by the 911 call. Moreover, it is important to note that while Darley was on the phone, she carried on conversations with multiple people, sounding as though she was completely panicked. She has heard speaking to Damon, Darren, the police officer, and the dispatcher throughout the entire call. In fact, three minutes and 48 seconds into the call, Waddell is heard saying, lay down. Okay, just sit down. He had a very short window of time where he could have been asking Darley who was herself injured to render aid to Damon. However, he is not heard doing this. He is instead heard directing Darley to sit down. It is unknown exactly why Waddell failed to provide medical aid to Damon upon arriving as he testified that the child was alive, moving, gasping for air, and looking around the room. Additionally, Waddell testified that he did not go into the garage where Darley informed him a person had fled. His testimony supports Darren's claim that he stood there in the home waiting for backup. 2.34 a.m., within four minutes into the 911 call, Darley begins to sound even more desperate. In the span of a minute, she asked the dispatcher twice about the ambulance and when it would arrive at the home. She pleaded to the dispatcher, they're barely breathing. If they don't get here, they're gonna die. Darren is heard during this time frame saying, they took, they ran. Now, four minutes and 18 seconds into the call, the dispatcher tells Darley there is a police officer at the front door. Waddell is already in the home at this time because his voice has been identified on the 911 tape during the later part of the third minute. The police officer at the door was likely Lieutenant Whaling because he testified to arriving at the home in and around this time frame. If true, it means that Waddell was in the home for approximately 46 seconds before Whaling arrived. 
During that time, Darley was still on the phone with the 911 and attempting to provide details to the officer about what happened. Now, paramedic Jack Colby testified that when he arrived at the home, one officer was already there and another was directly behind him. In testimony, the paramedic identified the officer that came right in after him was wailing. Colby explained that the paramedics waited just under two minutes before going into the home because they were waiting for an officer to secure the scene. 2.35 a.m., Darren's voice is not heard during the remainder of the call. However, Darley is heard on the 911 tape saying, somebody who did it intentionally walked in here and did it, Darren. This implies that Darren was in the area when she made this statement. Five minutes and 33 seconds into the call, the dispatcher asks if the police officer is there. Darren says yes. The dispatcher then asks her to go talk to the officer. The dispatcher does not realize that Darley has been carrying on multiple conversations at the same time throughout the call. 2.36 a.m. Wailing entered the backyard to secure it, according to his testimony. From 2.37 a.m. to 2.38 a.m., within that time frame, the paramedics were given the approval to enter the home. Colby went straight to Damon. He attended to Damon for two minutes inside of the home before moving him into the ambulance because it was too chaotic in the home. He stated that Damon was still barely alive when he got to him. He testified that Damon gasped for air as he turned him over. While he was with Damon, he observed the light begin to go out of his eyes. Now, when officers arrived, they walked in on a massive bloodbath. Damon was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately, Devin was pronounced dead at the scene. Darley was also rushed to the hospital where she had to have emergency surgery. Darley had suffered about a 9-centimeter stab wound to her neck, her left shoulder, and her right forearm, where the forearm was cut down to the bone. Per letter testimony of the treating physician, Dr. Alejandro Santos, He stated that Damon had no signs of life on arrival. I examined him and pronounced him dead. Upon examining him, he found multiple stab wounds in the back. Now, Damon's wounds consisted of two incised wounds and four stab wounds to the back. And for those of you who don't know what an incised wound is, it is a wound that is defined as a cut or a slash when a sharp object tip or sharp edge cuts the skin without penetrating the underlying tissue. Now, the deepest wound was almost five inches deep. One wound went through his right eighth rib and the other was a lower lobe right lung. Now, he had one in the middle lobe right lung and another in his upper chest on the right side and one in between the ribs. Devin's wounds consisted of Devin had three stab wounds and one incised wound. One stab wound perforated his left chest wall between the ribs, then perforated the left upper lung. One went through the left mid portion of his chest and the liver. The third wound was incised of the left forearm where 
It was soft tissue. And the fourth wound was on the left thigh. And that was also soft tissue. All wounds were from back to front. Sorry. Now, guys, apparently the kids were stabbed to the floor. And Officer Waddell went on record to say he actually saw Nick's on the concrete floor from where the weapon was going in with such force that it went right through the bodies. Darley's wounds consisted of neck injuries that was two millimeters from her carotid artery. She had a stab wound to the right forearm, cuts to fingers on her left hand, and some bruising and superficial cuts. Now, there is still an argument if her wounds were superficial compared to the wounds of her boys. Now, after surgery, Darley was questioned by police. She was quoted as saying, I woke up and felt pressure on me. I felt Damon press on my right shoulder and heard him cry. This made me wake up and really come awake and realize there was a man standing down at my feet, walking away from me. I walked after him and heard glass breaking. I got halfway through the kitchen and turned back around to run and turn on the light. Utility room and realized there was a big white handled knife lying on the floor. It was then that I realized I had blood all over me and I grabbed the knife thinking he was in the garage. So I thought he might still be there. So I yelled for Darren. I ran back through the kitchen and realized the entire living room area was covered and had blood all over the kitchen, including the kitchen sink, everything. I put the knife on the counter and ran into the entrance, turned on the light and started screaming for Darren. I think I screamed twice and he ran out of the bedroom with his jeans on and no glasses and was yelling, what is it? What is it? And I remember saying, he cut them. He tried to kill me. My neck, he ran down the stairs and into the living room where the boys were. And I grabbed the phone and I called 911. Just eight days after the murders, Darley, Devin, and a few family members were recorded having a birthday party at the cemetery to celebrate Damon's birthday. Darley was chewing gum and smiling and looked like she was putting on a shell. According to the investigators, they suspected her after questioning her about what took place, and they felt Darley showed all guilt and no remorse, and was arrested four days later and charged with capital murder. Now, the gravesite video would later come to be known as the Silly String Party and it was later discovered to have been obtained illegally. There is over two hours of footage, but only 15 seconds were shown in court of the Routier family happily playing silly string on Devin's grave. In Darley's court testimony, she was asked about the party and why she thought it was okay to spray silly string, but she said it was not her idea to bring the spray. It was actually her sister that purchased it and surprised everyone with it. Only Darley and her sister were seen spraying the boys' graves as Darren and his mother stood there looking very uncomfortable. There was a clear distinction between Darley's mood and Darren's mood. In court, Darley did admit that she had invited three different families to the boys' gravesite party. 
but we will cover this in a whole nother episode. Stay tuned. So what led to that gruesome night on June 6, 1996? Who would viciously attack Darley, Damon, and Devin, leaving them for dead? The police did not suspect that this was a robbery gone bad. There was too much evidence to suggest otherwise. But the question is, what would drive Darley Rotier to murder her own children? Darley met Devin Rotier 26 years prior to when she was 15. It was love at first sight, and they quickly became high school sweethearts and eventually married. Just nine months after they married, Devin was born. Darren owned a small company that became very successful after five years. According to the couple, they lived a very lavish life. And they went on vacations, drove new cars, and had a beautiful big home with its own spa and sauna room. The couple was also very generous with their money. They paid their neighbor's mortgage, who was actually unable to work due to battling cancer. A few years of spending heavily started to take a toll on the couple's relationship as Darren's business started to not make as much money as previous years. It's now 1995 and the couple was almost running out of money. They were facing a huge financial crisis and were in debt between the maxed out credit cards, past due bills, and even the bank refused to authorize any more loans. This began to affect Darlie's mental health as she did not like to be broke. The latter part of 1995, she began to struggle with depression. It was also around the time that Darlie and Devin welcomed their third son, Drake. Darlie did become suicidal and did keep a diary. Darren would later find her diary with an entry that read the following, quote, I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I am about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time, and I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in the world. I don't want you to see me as a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he will take care of my babies. Please do not hate me or think in any way this is your fault. It's just that I... The note completely cuts off at I. I... Darlie's journal was entered into evidence, and she was questioned on the stand about it. Obviously, she started writing entries years before this so-called suicide note, and the journal was never meant to be public. Even to Darren, and we know this because Darlie testified to this, but the last entry that read as if Darlie was going to end her life seems to have several versions on how and why it abruptly ended with the letter I. Now, if you don't see a pattern here, then let us point it out. Both Darren and Darlie had different accounts on every aspect so far and how the story goes from beginning to end for every single move they made. To be fair, a lot of the key players in this horrific tragedy seem to have more than one version. Like the old saying goes, there are three sides to every story. On the stand, Darlie told the story on how the last entry was not a suicide letter, but she admitted that she was going back and forth and swallowing a bunch of pills, but she insists she was not going to take her own life. She told a neighbor that she took the pills out of the wrappers and had to hide them under the bed because Darren walked in and the dog pulled them out and Darren saw them. 
The testimony was that she called Darren to come home and she told her husband what she was contemplating and that the pills were in the drawer and they both flushed them down the toilet together. Under the bed and in the drawer are absolutely two completely different locations and there's no confusing them. Speaking on the last entry, something stopped Darley from finishing her note and it seemed very unlikely that a person leaves a note on the letter I and then phones for help, but no one can speculate what she was going through at that moment. But I can, and I can speculate that this was not a suicide note, but Darley was so adamant that she was not going to take her own life. Now, I can believe that she was going to end the lives of her children. Darley's style of writing and her journals were always her private thoughts directed to a loved one. When Darley wrote about her stepfather sexually assaulting her, and her grandfather passing away, she testified that she was speaking to her grandmother. Who's not to say that she was speaking to the children in hopes that they would know how she felt after they were gone. All previous entries that read aloud in court were all the same sense of a blog, recounting the things that were happening. But the very last one read dark and apologized to her children. If she wasn't apologizing for leaving her kids in her own words, she said, and I quote, I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I am about to do, unquote. Now, in the world of psychology, this particular line is interpreted as when people say, forgive me for what I'm about to do, they are usually referring to the concept of self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness is an important aspect of mental well-being and personal growth. It involves acknowledging one's mistakes, but learning from them, and letting go of guilt and self-blame. By forgiving oneself, individuals can move forward, heal emotional wounds, and cultivate a healthier relationship with themselves. Notice the word, selves. Now, take into consideration that a way a person writes and speaks can be a product of their upbringing and education. And there has been many comments that Darley miswrote or was unaware of a lot of things. But look, she was either a dumb, immature blonde or a cold, calculated manipulator. And she couldn't possibly be both. Was the pressure of having a new baby and not being able to live like she was accustomed to living motive enough to kill her sons? That faithful night, Darley decided to have a sleepover with the boys downstairs, and she had trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. She was a light sleeper and would complain the baby would move around the night. Darley testified that she had been sleeping on the couch long before the murders for two reasons. Number one, her and Darren were having problems. And number two, she was a light sleeper and the infant baby made too much noise in his bassinet when he moved. She was quoted as describing the crib as being on a hardwood floor with rollers on it. And when he wiggled and moved, it shook the whole crib, making a pretty loud noise. But the big screen TV was on in the living room where Darley was supposedly asleep and she claimed she did not hear her children being attacked, nor did she wake up when the alleged intruder physically attacked her. 
but she did wake right up and jump into action when her youngest son tapped her on the shoulder and called her name. So is she claiming to be a light sleeper and noise wakes her up, but she stays asleep through a stranger forcefully touching her and slicing her with a knife? Once again, we come to a fork in the road where Darley plays both sides of the fence. Now, either you're a light sleeper or you're not. A person might say she was trying to cover all points, but by doing this, she made the story impossible. Now, this is Killer Lashes with Tati and Asha. Stay tuned to next week's episode. But before we leave you, what we want to know is, was Darley establishing her alibi on the 911 call? And why was Darren wearing his jeans to bed? Darren came down the stairs very fast, but was it too fast? All we want to know is what would drive a mother to kill her own children? Until then, Killer Lashes is signing off. I got medical emergency, 